Good morrow, friends. This is Jordan, and you're listening to Not Strictly History. Hello, everyone. It is so good to be here with you today, to be with you again. It's been a while. Welcome to season two of Not Strictly History. I'm so excited that we're here for season two. Season two is going to be fantastic, you guys. Like, I have things planned, okay? I have things planned, okay? And it is going to be rad. And as you may or may not have noticed, I changed our transition music. Now, here's the thing. I love the old transition music, and I am not married to the new transition music. I just really, really liked it, and I think it fits particularly well with today's episode. Now, let me know your thoughts. We can always switch back to the old stuff. Maybe I'll go back and forth. Who knows? I can be wild and crazy. Why not? Again, welcome. It is so good to be here with you guys today. So much has changed in my life in the last however long it's been since season one. I moved, I got a new job. I mean, things are just crazy. Duncan and I have been doing a lot of transitioning, a lot of adjusting, a lot of things are new and different, and it's been exciting and overwhelming. So the whole break came at a good time, I think you could say. And I am just really excited to be back and to be with you guys again. And I'm so excited for season two for like 9 million reasons. But not only do I have so many fun episodes planned, so many fun surprises for all of you, I also have changed the way that I do my research and also the way that I write my episodes. So the process has has changed for me and I think that it has improved the quality of my episodes greatly. Now, that being said, I don't think that my the quality was bad necessarily. I just I'm really pleased with the way the episodes are coming out on the writing end and I'm just excited to share this stuff with you guys and I'm excited to dive deeper into topics and really dig at some of the issues and tell you things that maybe you didn't know before even if the topics are things that you know something about. So, I'm really excited and I'm I'm super excited for today's episode and I'm going to tell you why. Because today my friends we're talking about something iconic is not even the word for it. Everybody knows about this thing that we're talking about. But do you know anything about it truly? Let's find out. I want to start off kind of in the middle. And I want to paint a picture for you. It is a semi-cloudy day, summer day, in upstate New York. You're walking through some freshly cut trails in a wooded area in the Catskills mountain range. In these shady woods, you come across many different people, some of whom have constructed booths with piled stone foundations. One of the first booths that booths that you come across is selling Mexican-inspired wares, clay pots, woven textiles, etc., all in beautifully bright colors. Similar products are sold at all of the other booths that are existing along these trails. 
as you continue to go from place to place to buy handmade goods or to view people's art, you can also fairly easily find something else for sale in this wood if you're in the market for it. And it is, um, it's LSD there for the taking. Well, you got to pay for it. But also, just in case you were wondering, across the way from this market in the woods is a huge field that slopes down towards a very large pond. And as you look through the different wares and all of these different booths, this field hosts about half a million people. And on the bottom of this field near the pond stands a stage where some of the biggest names in music history will be performing for three full days. That is right, my friends. Today, we are talking about the one and only Woodstock Music and Art Fair, known more commonly as just Woodstock. Now, again, who hasn't heard of Woodstock? Okay, who doesn't know Woodstock? Don't raise your hand because that's a lie. Everybody has heard of Woodstock and everybody has a lot of preconceived notions about it. Now, listen, I'm going to be completely and totally honest with you. My entire life, I knew three things about Woodstock, okay? I knew mud, I knew sex, and I knew drugs. And that is what I knew about the Woodstock Music Festival. Now, listen, I wasn't wrong. However, there is a lot more to the story. And I'm so excited that I decided to just kind of sate my curiosity a little bit and start looking into this. Because once you start looking into the Woodstock Music Festival, my friends, you realize just how big of a deal it really was, how life-altering it was. And not only that, how much it really, it truly changed the country. It truly changed the world. And especially if you're passionate about music, this moment in music history is unprecedented really before or since like Coachella wishes my friends. Okay. And we're going to go into all of it. I'm going to tell you guys everything that I have learned about Woodstock and more. I'm, I'm so excited. It's just, it's, it's exciting. I'm really excited. And like I said, there is a lot there's a lot to go into. So this is probably going to be a fairly long episode. And um, that might be a theme throughout this season, actually. I think our episodes are going to be a little bit longer than normal. And again, that's because I've changed the way that I do my research and my writing. And I really want to give you guys quality episodes that are teaching you a lot. And also, I've gotten several comments from people that they prefer the longer episodes and they like going more into the details. So um, you're probably going to get that this season. So congratulations. And um, let's get into it. Let's learn more about Woodstock. The year is 1969. And you and your good friend, who also happens to be your business partner, come up with a fantastic idea, a really good idea. What if you were to build this resort slash recording studio in our very own rural New York town? Okay, maybe this sounds crazy, but guys, this is literally what happened. 
two men by the name of Artie Kornfeld and Michael Lang decided that it would be a fantastic idea to build a resort slash recording studio in rural Woodstock, New York. Now, it's, it's not completely out of the blue, okay? They both had experience in the music industry. Michael Lang, for example, had experience as a promoter. He had co-organized the Miami Pop Festival on the East Coast the year before, and that had had 25,000 attendees, and it was a two-day event. So that's, that is a big deal. So this is not just some random idea that two guys have one day, okay? They did, they have credentials. Now listen, there are, there were actually several big name artists um, who lived in this area or frequented it a lot. And, um, which is, which is crazy. But for example, one of them was um, Bob Dylan. Crazy, right? So the whole idea behind a resort slash studio, what they really wanted was a recording studio. However, even though there were a lot of big name artists in the area, they, they knew that a recording studio in a rural area was just a risk. And they figured that having a resort with it would help support the recording studio. And it's a beautiful area. And they just figured, why not? They also had an idea to promote their studio slash resort with an opening concert. It was envisioned that it was going to be this long weekend in the summer featuring the kinds of artists that they hoped to attract to the studio. So they have this great idea. And all they need to get it going is some financial backing. One day, they meet with their lawyer who says to them, Hey, dudes, I just did some legal work for a project that's going on in Manhattan, and it is right up your alley. Verbatim, that's what he said. He goes on to tell them that this project he's been helping with is a huge recording studio complex in Manhattan called Media Sound. The entrepreneurs behind this project were two men named John P. Roberts and Joe Rosenman. They were very well known as men who wanted to finance projects, get into business, make a splash, etc. Okay, they were always looking for a new investment. Some years before, when they had first come together, they actually placed an ad in the newspaper calling for legitimate projects with potential, branding themselves as quote, young men with unlimited capital. Listen, I don't know how accurate that actually is, because talk of debt and bankruptcy does come up later. However, the point is that Roberts and Rosenman loved big projects. They weren't afraid to jump into a venture. They did have quite a bit of money behind them. And they also had a passion for music. I mean, they were already working on a recording studio, not even a studio. I mean, it's referred to as a recording complex. It was a very big project. So just to give you a bit more of an idea of what Roberts and Rosenman were capable of, let's talk a little bit about this project that they're working on, this recording complex called Media Sound. So this, pro this process, excuse me, this recording studio complex was in the middle of Manhattan. It was founded in 1969, and it was built inside a former Baptist church in downtown Manhattan. The planning and design was entrusted, entrusted to one Harry Hirsch, 
Bob Walters was also involved. It was this recording complex was famous over the years for the ability of the engineers to better adapt to all kinds of musical genres. If you wanted great engineers and a great sound, you went to media sound. And it was because they had this particular sound that was associated with their studios, particularly Studio A, because Studio A was set up in the nave of the church. If you don't know anything about churches, let me just tell you really quick. The nave is the big area by the stand, basically. So the acoustics in this studio were just incredible. Again, Studio A at Media Sound was famous for the sound that it could produce. And not only that, the engineers at this place were just incredible. This was a very important recording complex for many, many artists over the years. And um, it eventually closed in the 90s. But listen, this is what Roberts and Rosenman were capable of. This is the kind of venture that they are looking for. So after these four guys, Roberts, Rosenman, Kornfeld, and Lang are all connected, Kornfeld and Lang pitched them their idea of the resort slash recording studio in Woodstock, New York. Roberts and Rosenman were not into the studio in the woods idea, basically because they just didn't think that it was financially viable long term, but they did make a counter offer. So again, since they didn't think that it was sustainable, even with a resort attached to it, they um, they latched onto the idea of the promotional concert. Now remember, Kornfeld and Lang were like, hey, we'll build this thing to promote it. We'll have a huge concert on opening weekend. And Roberts and Rosenman were like, hey, that's actually a really good idea. So instead of this concert just being a promotional tool for a studio, they proposed that they simply put on the concert in the same area and have that be the business venture itself, just the concert. Lang and Kornfeld agreed to the new plan and Woodstock Ventures was formed in January 1969. And yes, this is the company that organized and put on Woodstock. In the form of this company, Woodstock Ventures, we have these four men, the Woodstock Dream Team. That's not actually what they were called. I literally made that up. Um, Even though they were able to organize one of the most influential events in history, not even just music history, just in history, it really wasn't smooth sailing. Okay, Let let me tell you. There were a lot of differences among these four men, which isn't surprising. You know, they come from different backgrounds. But for example, Roberts was really, really disciplined. He was one of those businessmen who just knew what you needed for success. He was very organized, very goal-oriented. Lang, on the other hand, was really laid back. He saw Woodstock as a new and more relaxed way of bringing entrepreneurs together. I can see where both of them are coming from with these different viewpoints. Let's say that. Um, However, Lang was unable to find a site for the concert, unable to procure a venue. There were other differences um, in financial discipline, especially that made Roberts and Rosenman wonder 
whether or not to pull the plug many different times or if they should continue to pump money into the idea of the concert. So despite these big differences, they and, you know, just the way that all of them liked to work in general, we can now look back and say that they were massively successful in their efforts, but they didn't know that at the time. And, and in fact, it we'll get into it. The further they got into this adventure, the riskier it became. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We have our dream idea. We have our dream team. Now it's time to make the dream a reality. So our dream team has created a company, right? We've got Woodstock Ventures, and they're ready to just put all of their effort into this special concert. But the first thing that they actually need is an office space because you can't have a company or a business without some kind of connected space after all. So the offices of Woodstock Ventures were located at 47 West 57th Street in Manhattan. A man by the name of Bert Cohen slash Curtain Call Productions, his, his company, oversaw the transformation of their office space. And Lang is the one who hired this man. Now listen, every single time you look, if any single, any time, wow, I'm having, give me a sec. Anytime you look up Woodstock and you come across this fact, everybody uses the exact same adjective to describe how he designed their office. That term is psychedelic. He created a psychedelic office space for Woodstock Ventures. The problem is that nobody liked what he did to the office and they couldn't stand being there. So Lang actually ended up renting another office space on 6th Avenue in West Village. And this created even more tension among the men because they were never together at the office. Listen to me, people. Listen to my voice right now. I tried so hard to find any kind of photos of this office space or just any more description of it just you know in general but i couldn't i could not find a single grain of more information on it so maybe maybe we'll never know but my heart yearns for information i i need to know you guys it's a psychedelic office space in 1969 where do i sign where do i put my name show me I will write my name immediately. I just, if any of you can track down this information, let me know. Okay, so the fun tidbit of the office space aside, let's dive into actually the beginning of this venture. So how do we get from four guys dreaming up a concert in the woods to the actual event? Well, first and foremost, we've got to settle on a location. So the original plan was to have the concert in the town of Woodstock, probably near the site where the original recording studio would have been built. However, this, this got shut down really, really quickly because the locals were like, LOL, no, we're not doing that. So then Lang and Kornfeld thought of Winston Farm in another farm close by in New York. This also didn't work out because the landowner's lawyer shot it down really, really fast. So after Lang and Kornfeld just 
couldn't seem to come up with a location, Roberts and Rosenman went on the road. Literally, they got in the car and they just started driving around New York, upstate New York, in the middle of nowhere, just trying to find a good spot for this concert. They soon discovered the 300-acre Mills Industrial Park in Wallkill, New York, and it it seemed perfect for them. So Woodstock Ventures leased this property in the spring of 1969 for $10,000. And they assured the town officials that there would be no more than 50,000 people attending this event. However, the town residents really, really opposed the idea. They were not into it. In early July, the town board passed a law requiring a permit for gatherings of more than 5,000 people. And the conditions of this law made it impossible for the promoters to continue any construction at the Wallkill site, which means that we're back to square one. The scheduled time for the concert is, is getting closer and the locations keep falling through. What's even worse about this is that, again, they had leased the property, they had already started building, and then it fell through. So now what? What do we do? We don't have a location. The time is drawing near. Things are getting dire. Well, let me tell you just a little bit more about Woodstock, okay? Because again, there's a lot. Most of you probably know Woodstock as a free concert. However, of as we know, it was originally conceived as a profit-making venture because we've got businessmen up in here. Woodstock only ended up being a concert that many people got into for free because of this time crunch that happened right before. And we'll get more into that later. So there were tickets for Woodstock. And the pre-sale of these tickets was not a joke, my friends, okay? The cost of tickets was $18 for an advance ticket and would be $24 at the, at the gate. The equivalent of $140 and $190 today. I'm going to say it, that's a steal. So pre-sale tickets were limited to record stores in the greater New York City area or by mail via a post office box at the Radio City Station post office in Midtown Manhattan. Listen to this fact, my friends. 186,000 advance tickets were being sold. And if you remember, the organizers told several officials at many different properties that they were only planning on 50,000 total attendees. So yeah, um, the estimate was completely blown apart by just the pre-sale tickets. So the pre-sale is going crazy, but if you'll remember, the Dream Team still doesn't have a location and the location they thought they had just fell through and they've got at least 186,000 people scheduled to show up soon. So they're freaking out because all of this stuff is getting shut down by the local government. But guess what? Fate smiled upon them, my friends. Listen, there are actually quite a few conflicting stories about how what happened next happened. Um, but the summary of all of it is that somehow the Dream Team came into contact with a local man by the name of Max Yasger. I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce it. Let me know if that's wrong. As many of you may or may not know, Woodstock was held on a 600-acre dairy farm located about 40 miles southwest of the town of Woodstock, New York. 
so, I mean, they definitely had to travel a bit from the original intended location, but now they can finally get going for real because they've locked in this location. Let's talk about this dairy farm just a little bit. Max Yasger, again, was the owner of this dairy farm. He was paid very well for the lease of his land, which he deserved, by the way. And he actually had strict cleanup stipulations in his contract, which was very smart. Because if you have seen any photos, like, dude, the cleanup was wild. But the wonderful thing that I did not see coming at all is that Max Yasker was actually, he really seemed to care about and believe in the spirit of what was trying to be done at Woodstock. Everything that I've encountered in my research points strongly to the fact that he wasn't just some local landowner looking to profit off of something that everybody else was upset about. He went on to say that all of the attendees of Woodstock spent three days with music and peace on their minds. And he also stated, quote, if we join them, we can turn those adversities that are problems in America today into a hope for a brighter and more peaceful future. And that, my friends is what Woodstock was envisioned to be. So knowing this, all of this about Max Yasker, I think we can safely conclude that he is the hero of this story and a truly inspiring person. And I'm not just saying that. I really do. I really do think that. I'm going to choose to believe that. And let his words just warm my heart because they really do encompass everything that Woodstock was supposed to be about. We talked very briefly in the beginning about modern perceptions of Woodstock and kind of some of the legacy that has endured. Again, before researching for this episode, the only things that I knew about Woodstock was that it was some kind of hippie festival and there was sex and drugs and mud. And Here's the thing. Again, these things absolutely were real. <laughs> I'm like, we know these things about Woodstock because that's what happened. But if you look just a little bit deeper into the festival and what it was meant to be by those who organized it and how it actually ended up affecting all of the people who attended it, you come to realize that there is so much more to it than we've been led to believe. And that is why researching for this episode and writing for this episode actually turned out to be a much more inspiring experience than I had ever anticipated it. And I, I love that. I'm, I hope that that continues to happen throughout my podcast career, that I am just continually surprised by the things that I've learned, that I get to learn. And I hope that you guys can kind of feel some of that too. That's a tangent. Let's continue. So Woodstock was actually billed as, quote, an Aquarian exposition, three days of peace and music. From the get-go, there was a pretty pure intention attached to this concert. What many of you may not know is that Woodstock was also intended to be an art fair. It's true. There was supposed to be art there that people could go see, and that did end up happening, by the way. So we also began this episode by talking about the woods. We took a walk through a part of the festival that many people do not know about. And it's called the Bindi Bazaar. And it's basically kind of like a farmer's market, to be honest. Um, the website, there is a website about this. And it says, quote, 
Participants were invited to sell memorabilia such as beads, moccasins, posters, t-shirts, etc. Distribute reading material such as pamphlets, philosophical and political leaflets, and underground newspapers, and dispense up-to-date festival information. By all accounts, the woods was also the most popular spot for the sale and purchase of drugs. To which I say, cowabunga, live your life, don't do drugs. And again, this was this quote is from the National Register of Historical Places registration form. Again, the Bindi Bazaar was across the way from the front stage seating area. Um, again, a wooded area, it was known as either the Bindi Woods or the Bindi Bazaar, and the trails were cut through the woods that year in 1969. And all of the rocks were gathered to stack and create the foundations where the vendors at the Aquarian Crafts Bazaar would set up their makeshift stalls and sell goods to all the concert goers. Now, Fun fact, the Bindi Bazaar is actually currently being reestablished as a nature trail, which I find incredibly wonderful. Archaeologists from the public archaeology facility at Binghamton University actually um, investigated the woods in 2017 and in 2020, and they successfully located the stone foundations of most of the 20 some odd booths. And some of the trees actually still have wires embedded in their trunks from the from the concert. I just, I love all these little fun facts, okay? I love it that the history is still so alive. So these little facts alone are pretty good indicators that the festival was about so much more than just showing up for sex and drugs and rock and roll. We also talked earlier about how the organizers expected 50,000 people to attend and then ended up selling over 180,000 tickets just in their pre-sale. Okay, so listen, but listen, that is actually nothing compared to what actually happened. Because guess what? Guess what, everyone? Nearly 500,000 people showed up to the Woodstock Festival. Despite there being inadequate facilities for so many people and a ton of rain and mud, there is not one recorded incident of interpersonal violence. And if you look into the attendees, the overwhelming message from all of them is that there was a deep feeling of friendliness, kindness, and safety. Crazy town, my friends. But listen, let's back up a little bit because um, Max Yasger just gave the Dream Team the permission to use his place, and um, there is outrage. Because now, all they have to start do is building the facilities. But again, if, if you know, there's local outrage. If you thought that part of the story was finished, you are wrong. So, listen, there was a huge amount of resident opposition. The closest town now is a town called Bethel, New York, and the residents were not happy with the idea of a huge music festival coming into their territory. In fact, there were signs around town that said, buy no milk, stop Max's hippie music festival, which I actually love. I want my own sign that says that. However, festival permits were approved by the town attorney, the building, the building inspector, and the town inspector town supervisor. However, 
the Bethel Town Board refused to issue the permits formally. Donald Clark, the building inspector, was ordered to post stop work orders. This is when Rosenman decided he would meet up with Don Clark, the building inspector. And he basically said, hey, it's really unethical for you to withhold the permits that have already been authorized. I know you have them. Please give them to me. That's probably not exactly what he said. Um, it was probably a little bit more heated than that. I think that we can probably safely say that. At the end of this little meeting, Don Clark gave him the permits and the stop work order was lifted. Because again, these permits had already been issued and then the town board was just not going to give it to them, which is not cool. So the festival could now proceed under one condition from the Department of Health and Agriculture, which was that all of the structures had to be removed by September 1st of 1969. Listen to me. The festival itself was scheduled for August 15th through the 17th, which means that's a that's a pretty tight window for cleanup and and everything. But they couldn't back down now. They just had to go for it. And there were a lot of obstacles in their way. OK, the very late venue change didn't give our dream team enough prep time, essentially. So this is what caused all of the things that ended up being problems at the Woodstock Festival. In a meeting three days before the event, the construction foreman said that the people in charge would have to choose between two options moving forward. Number one, they could either complete the stage, without which there's no concert, or number two, they could complete the fencing and the ticket booths, without which, after the festival, Roberts and Rosenman would almost certainly face bankruptcy. However, the decision was made for them because the next day they realized, hey, we need to finish the stage. And do you know why? Do you know why they had to finish the stage? Because overnight, 50,000 people showed up. I'm not kidding. Overnight, 50,000 early birds arrived and planted themselves squarely in front of the half-finished stage. So our dream team said, okay, it's probably a good idea to finish the stage. So for the rest of the weekend, the concert goers walked onto the site with or without tickets, thus creating the whole free concert that most of us think about when we think of Woodstock today, which is wild. So let's set the scene for our three days of peace and music, shall we? Max Yasker's land formed a natural bowl that sloped down toward Philippine Pond, which was on the land's north side. The stage was set at the bottom of this hill with the pond as a backdrop. And the pond became a very popular skinny dipping destination, which we're all here for. Let's talk about this pond. So the pond was actually technically the property of the next farm over. It was owned by a man named William Filippini. So the concert was scheduled to start on Friday, August 15th, 1969. On Thursday night, the night before the concert was supposed to start, they leased the land from William Filippini in order to use the pond as their water source. So more people had already turned up than they had thought. 
So they decided, hey, we should probably do this. Allegedly, they also purified the water. Now, I say allegedly because I could not find any more information on that. However, if you're using a pond as a water source for thousands and thousands of people, it's probably a good idea to purify the water. So I'm going to choose to believe that. That's where I'm at. Friday morning, so many more people had shown up than anybody thought. Like it, it was just crawling with people. And William Filippini awoke to see all of these people swarming everywhere. And he also found a couple having sex on his porch, which is just a lot of words. He handled it very well, though, according to everything that I found. I don't know what that means. I don't know any more of the story, but he handled it well. And, um, which I just love. So let's talk about the sound. The sound was engineered by one Bill Hanley, which think about it. Okay, folks, this is an outside concert, thousands and thousands, like hundreds of thousands of people. Okay. Sound is a really big deal. Sound is super important. Like it, it, that's why they're there. Right. So Bill Hanley talked about the sound. He said, quote, it worked very well. I built special speaker columns on the hills and had 16 loudspeaker arrays in a square platform going up to the hill on 70-foot towers. We set it up for 150 to 200,000 people. Of course, 500,000 showed up. Can you believe that? Guys, can you? They anticipated 50,000 and said, hey, we'll set up sound for 150 to 200,000, thinking to themselves, this is absolutely adequate. No, actually, crazy. It's crazy. So the performances were captured on two eight-track Scully recorders and a tractor trailer backstage by Edward Kramer and Lee Osborne on one-inch Scotch recording tape at 15 IPS. They were then mixed at the record, record plant studio in New York. The fact that the sound at the Woodstock Music Festival was recorded on eight track recorders in a tractor trailer backstage is the most phenomenal fact ever. And I don't know how to say it more than that. So let's move on to lighting, because that's also very important. A man named E.H. Beresford Monk, he also just went by Chip. He was the lighting designer and technical director. He was hired to plan and build the staging and the lighting. So he was hired for 10 weeks of work, for which he was paid $7,000, which was $56,000 today, so not bad. However, much of the plan had to be scrapped when they were unable to use the original wall kill site, of course. Which, can you, like, come with me on this, Kate. You're hired by these people to create lighting staging for this huge concert. Like, it's a big deal just all on its own, right? Then you show up to the location, you start planning, you start building, and oh no, the government shuts you down. So last minute, you're given this other location, and you just have to make it work. That's stress, 
right there. That's a stressful work environment. Let's just say that. So um, because the stage roof was constructed in a shorter amount of time, it was actually unable to support the lighting that they rented. So the lighting that they rented sat unused beneath the stage, and the only light on stage was from spotlights. I'm sure this just made it more aesthetic, but the fact that that lighting sat underneath the stage is just wild. So they used 12 1300-watt Super Trooper follow spots rigged on four different towers around the stage. They weighed 600 pounds each. And listen to this. They were operated by individuals who had to climb to the top of the 60-foot towers. No big deal. I'm just going to climb up this 60-foot tower so that I can manually operate this spotlight in the rain in the middle of nowhere. It's insane. Like It's just, it's crazy. So just before the concert started, our lighting designer, Chip, he was drafted not into the war. Listen, I thought that that was the case because I just did. No, he was um, hired, drafted, very last minute as the master of ceremonies. But get this, due to the fact that Lang, Michael Lang, one of our dream team, he just suddenly realized that they had never hired one. So he said, hey, lighting dude, you're now the master of ceremonies. That's literally what happened. So um, Chip can actually be heard and seen in the recordings of Woodstock making the various stage announcements, including requests to, quote, stay off the towers and a warning about the, quote, brown acid. Now listen to me. Listen good, my friends, because this was a rabbit hole I happily went down. There is a legend about bad acid bad drug, bad LSD that was made famous because of Woodstock. Okay, listen, because the attendees were warned to stay away from it because it was allegedly a bad batch. If you look into this just a little bit, you will learn that there really isn't any such thing as a, quote, bad batch of acid just because of the way that it is, meaning the chemical makeup and that sort of thing. So, Research shows that usually when people say that they've been subjected to a bad batch of acid, the real problem is that they were either sold a higher dose than usual, which is very easily done because the because with acid, the measurement system is different than with any other drug. So it's very common to get a different amount than you need. Well, you don't. Listen, this is a professional environment. It's common to accidentally get the wrong amount. So around this time, late 60s, early 70s, it was really, really common that dealers would sell drugs advertised as LSD, but they were actually really other types of drugs. So that is what resulted in what we think of as a bad trip, when in reality, they were just sold the wrong drug. Listen to me. There is a lot more on this. I had no idea that the whole bad acid thing led into an actual like niche of history that exists, but it does. And I suggest that you look into it because it's actually very, very fascinating. If you think of this time, late 60s, early 70s, drugs were, 
I mean, let's face it, drugs still are a very big deal and a very big problem. But I feel like this time in history is famous for it. And um, one of the reasons for that is because of legends like this, of the bad acid. And I had no idea before now that that this one, this thought process in particular, originated at Woodstock. I had no clue. And I actually find it pretty fascinating. But maybe that's a story for another time. Maybe we'll have to do an episode about the niche of the history of narcotics. Why not? So let's continue. We're going to move on from narcotics now. And I'm going to run through um, just some fun facts with you. So there was actually a massive traffic jam all throughout the area, which you can probably um, understand because half a million people showed up. Anyway, um, the traffic was backed up for 63 miles. You heard that correctly. 63 miles. The town of Bethel did not enforce any of their codes because they just feared chaos, basically, as the crowd kept getting bigger and bigger. Radio and television descriptions of traffic jams actually discouraged many more attendees. So if if they hadn't reported on this, who knows how many more people would have actually shown up at Woodstock, which is crazy, crazy to think of. So one of the performers at Woodstock, Arlo Guthrie, said in an announcement that is included in the Woodstock documentary that the New York State Thruway was closed. However, the director of the Woodstock Museum said that this closure never happened. So we're not really sure why Arlo Guthrie decided to say, hey, the state thruway is closed. Because again, that never happened. However, that's neither here nor there. A great amount of recent rain and rain all throughout the concert caused a lot of mud, my friends. A ton of muddy roads and muddy fields. The facilities, again, were not equipped for this many people to show up. They were not equipped for sanitation or for first aid. And so hundreds of thousands of people just found themselves in a struggle against bad weather, food shortages, and poor sanitation. In fact, on Sunday, August 17th, 1969, the New York governor of the time, Nelson Rockefeller, called Roberts and said he was thinking of ordering 10,000 National Guard onto the site. Roberts said, hey, please don't do that. And so they they didn't. (laughs) However, Sullivan County declared a state of emergency. And during the festival, personnel from nearby Stewart Air Force Base helped ensure order. And they airlifted performers in and out of the concert site. I had no idea about any of this. How insane is this? It's, It's insane. Okay, listen. And again, despite... All of this, despite the state of emergency, not having anything they needed, it being muddy and cold and rainy, despite all of this, the festival was very, very peaceful. Let's get into a little bit more detail about that. There are some recorded fatalities from Woodstock. Two drug overdoses, and another when a 17-year-old boy was run over by a tractor while he was sleeping in a nearby hayfield. 
17-year-old Raymond Mizak was the one who passed away because he was sleeping in the hayfield. Now, listen, when I very first heard about this one, I was like, how is that even a thing? How is that a thing that he did not hear a tractor coming? But again, remember, there's a huge music festival nearby. It's loud. Not only that, there's half a million people around, okay? The countryside that is usually quiet and peaceful is not quiet and peaceful. I'm sure there was just a lot more going on than we can imagine. And it's just, it's very, it's very sad. It's very tragic that this is how he passed away. There was also an 18-year-old Marine. His name was Richard Baylor, I believe, and he was bound for Vietnam. The details of his death are a bit more convoluted. Um, it's largely been labeled an overdose. It has been said that it was a combination of hypothermia and an inflammation of cardiac tissue due to the side effects from Thorazine. But listen, Thorazine is a drug that he would have been given in order to combat an overdose. So, is it an overdose at the end of the day? Probably. However, those are some of the fatalities. Again, two drug overdoses and the 17-year-old that was run over by the tractor. So, we have three recorded fatalities. Listen, half a million people show up to this place with no facilities, really, and we have three fatalities. Obviously, it's horrible that anybody had to die. However, it's just insane that more people didn't, like, like it's just, it's, you know what I'm saying, okay? It's crazy how peaceful this, this place really was. It's crazy. There are also births claimed. So, it is claimed that one woman um, went into labor in a car that was caught in traffic. And there is also one that was in the hospital after she was airlifted by a helicopter. So neither of these births have been confirmed. The airlifted mother is semi-confirmed by a guy who says that he was on the airlift team. However, the Woodstock babies have never been officially confirmed, so we don't know for sure. There was actually an article that came out, like, on the 40th anniversary or something, that said, like, hey, Woodstock babies, are you out there? And um, we don't know. So maybe it's just a myth. Maybe we do have Woodstock babies out there. Who knows? Um, there were four to eight miscarriages reported, which is sad. Over the three days, there were also 742 drug overdoses, not fatal. As far as media coverage goes, there were actually very few reporters from outside the area that were present. During the first little bit of the festival, the media just continued to emphasize the problems that were going on at the festival. Headlines in the Daily News said, Traffic uptight at Hippie Fest, or Hippies mired in a sea of mud. The New York Times ran an editorial titled Nightmare in the Catskills. Um, and here's a quote from that editorial. Quote, the dreams of marijuana and rock music that drew 300,000 fans and hippies to the Catskills had little more sanity than the impulses that drive the lemmings to march to their deaths in the sea. 
They ended in a nightmare of mud and stagnation. What kind of culture is it that can produce so colossal a mess? Listen, that is that is salt to the nth degree, first of all. Second of all, I love it. I think it's phenomenal. I, I love a good passive-aggressive editorial. However, um, coverage started to get a lot more positive tour as the festival went on. Partly, interestingly enough, partly because parents of the concert goers were calling the media and saying, hey, like your reports are false and they're very, very misleading because they had been getting phone calls from their children about how, po- how positive it was and how much fun that they were having. So the New York Times covered the prelude to the festival and the move from Wallkill to Bethel. And there's a man by the name of Barnard Collier, and he worked for the New York Times. He reported from Woodstock for the New York Times, and he was pressured by on-duty editors at the paper to write misleading and negative articles about the event. He alleged that this led to a lot of angry discussions, and he actually threatened to refuse to write the article at all until the executive editor, James Reston, agreed to let him write the article however he wanted, which seems fitting since he's the one out there. His eventual article, it did report a little bit about um, the traffic jams and minor law breaking, but it went on to emphasize the cooperation, generosity, and the good nature of the festival goers, which again, that's stuff that you don't hear about. There is the, it, 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 I'm stuttering because there's a lot you don't hear about. And again, I just, I found learning about this oddly uplifting, oddly inspiring, because if you really stop to think about the amount of people that were there and the conditions that they were in, it's wild that it just wasn't sheer, utter, pure chaos, but it wasn't. And even, you know, even the reporter that's there is saying, hey, People were cooperative, people were generous, and people were happy to be there. That's incredible. That's truly an incredible thing to be able to report. Um, so there's a nearby town. Again, Bethel is the town that we're closest to, but there's another town nearby called Middletown, and they had a newspaper called the Times-Herald Record. It was the only local daily newspaper, and it editorialized against the law banning the festival from Wallkill. It also had a rare Saturday edition printed during the festival, which is crazy, my friends. It also had the only phone line running out of the site, which like that's exclusivity right there. They had a motorcyclist who got stories and pictures from the crowd to the newspaper office 35 miles away. How crazy is that? He's riding his bike through all of these crowds to get to the newspaper office so that they can print papers. I think it's just remarkable. I truly do. So despite what you're all probably thinking right now, I am not deaf. I can hear you screaming at me. I can. I can hear you screaming. And I know what you're thinking. We've learned many different facts about the festival. We know about the setup. We know how many people showed up, blah, 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 blah. But we haven't touched on the most important part yet. Don't worry, though. This was planned. I have saved the best for right now. It's time to talk about the music, my friends. We're to the best part. It's time to talk about the music at Woodstock. If you'll recall... 
the original plan was that the concert would be promotional for Lang and Kornfeld's recording studio. And all of the performers at this concert would be the kind of artists that they wanted as clients at the recording studio. But the story of who performed at Woodstock is... The story of who actually ended up performing at Woodstock is much bigger and much more complex than you would ever think. The original set list was never followed due to delays that were caused by rain. Many artists canceled at the last minute. Some artists couldn't get there because of the traffic. So who actually ended up performing at Woodstock? What music rang through this site for three days? Well, this story actually begins several months before the festival, in April of 1969. None other than Credence Clearwater Revival became the first act to sign a contract for the event. I did not know this. I did not know that they were the first ones. It's super freaking awesome, okay? They agreed to play Woodstock for $10,000, which would be about $80,000 today. There had been just a really big struggle to get big name acts interested until CCR agreed. Their drummer said, once Credence signed, everyone else jumped in line and all the other big acts came on. They had a 12.30 a.m. start time. And they were also not featured in the Woodstock documentary due to their front man, John Fogarty's insistence. So it's actually, it's really interesting. Most of the members of Credence Clearwater Revival were or have expressed being disappointed in their experience at Woodstock. However, one of the most beautiful things that came out of Woodstock is their front man, John Fogarty's recollection of them beginning their performance. Credence Clearwater Revival started performing at 12.30 a.m. at the Woodstock Music Festival. And this is what he said. Quote, We were ready to rock out and we waited and waited and finally it was our turn. There were half a million people asleep. These people were out. It was sort of like a painting of a Dante scene just bodies from hell, all intertwined and asleep, covered with mud. And this is the moment I will never forget as long as I live. A quarter mile away in the darkness, on the other edge of the bowl, there was some guy flicking his bick, and in the night I hear, don't worry about it, John, we're with you. I played the rest of the show for that guy. It is very beautiful moments like this that really drive home that that really bring forward the root of what it was like to be at Woodstock because objectively nobody should have been having a good time nobody I mean it wasn't objectively okay wasn't a good time and yet there are so many moments of pure human connection like this that are everywhere in personal accounts of the festival you don't have to look very hard to find accounts like this. And that is so special. I just, it's very, very special. And I'm so glad that we have just that little moment to look on as an example. So when it comes to the music, 
there's a lot more that we need to touch on. And I mean, you know, since it was after all a, a music festival, there's a lot to talk about when it comes to the music. But before we continue on with the actual set list and who played for the crowd of half a million people, I want to take a minute to discuss what I've started to call the almost list because <laughs> my friends, that's a list that exists. Who almost played at Woodstock? Who declined invitations or had other engagements in place? I have this information for you and more. First and foremost, we need to start off by talking about Bob Dylan, not because he's the most important or anything like that, but just to get the record straight. If you will remember, Bob Dylan lived in, frequented the area. He was the kind of artist that they wanted at their original recording studio. However, he did not perform at Woodstock. He lived there, but he was never a serious negotiation as a performer for Woodstock. He actually signed to play the Isle of Wight Festival of Music on August 31st, which is intriguing. So who were the lost connections of Woodstock? Let's begin. The Beatles slash John Lennon. Listen, the Beatles were in the middle of recording Abbey Road and on the verge of breaking up at the time. So it was a no for the band as a whole. Listen, though, because there's more. So if the whole band couldn't come, they thought, hey, maybe John Lennon can just come. John Lennon and the Plastic Ono Band were maybe going to come. However, John Lennon's controversial views about the United States involvement in Vietnam had made it so that the then current president, Richard Nixon, wasn't too keen on having Lennon in the country. So none of that ended up happening. Guys, this is what happened. All the Beatles wouldn't come because they were just going through it. So then they said, hey, maybe John Lennon can come. And then they said, hey, John Lennon actually can't come because the president doesn't like him. That's what happened. In layman's terms, that's what happened. Another missed connection is the band Chicago. They actually had date conflicts and they ended up being replaced by the band Santana. But this was actually strategic by their manager by the name of Bill Graham because he also managed, he managed both groups, Chicago and Santana. And he switched around their concert dates. So, I mean, he kind of, he kind of fooled around with that, to be honest, but maybe again, maybe that's a story for another time. Um, another lost connection of Woodstock was actually Joni Mitchell. Interesting fact. She was originally going to play at Woodstock, um, but she canceled at the urging of her manager because she would have missed an appearance on the Dick Cavett show. And she actually ended up composing a song called The Woodstock that was inspired by the things that she saw and heard about it. Another lost connection was the band Iron Butterfly. They actually um, signed on. They were going all was well in the neighborhood. But they actually got stuck at LaGuardia Airport because of all the traffic. And they, they couldn't make it, so they didn't end up performing, which is wild. Let's move on because there, there's more here. We're now, we're away from the Lost Connection group. Who just straight up said no? Because that list also exists. What bands slash artists just straight up said 
no, we're not performing at your little festival. Well, the guess who is one, Led Zeppelin. And listen, their manager, Peter Grant, said, I said no because at Woodstock, we'd have just been another band on the bill. I'm going to repeat that. The manager of Led Zeppelin said no to them performing at Woodstock because, quote, we'd have just been another band on the bill. Imagine telling on yourself like that. Anyway, other people slash bands who declined, Lighthouse, Jethro Tool, Arthur Lee and Love, the Rolling Stones. Now listen, the only reason the Rolling Stones declined is because Mick Jagger was doing a movie in Australia and Keith Richards had a brand new baby. Can you imagine if the Rolling Stones had made it to Woodstock? Maybe the world would have imploded. I mean, it's who, who knows, okay? Simon and Garfunkel were also invited, um, but they said no because they were recording a new album. I just want so badly for them to have shown up. Maybe that's what I'll do if I go back in time. I'll change that. Now, Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention were also invited to perform at Woodstock, and they said no because um, too much mud by far. <laughs> that is what they said. There's too much mud by far, which I love. Listen, there is a third group, okay? There are those who didn't perform at Woodstock because they didn't think it would be that big of a deal. How do you feel now, my friends? Let's listen. The Doors, they originally accepted, but canceled at the last minute. The Birds, Tommy James and the Shondells, Mind Garage, Moody Blues, they actually rebooked in Paris. The band Poco, listen to me right now. They didn't perform, again, because they didn't think Woodstock would be a big deal. Instead, they performed a school gym concert in L.A., Talk about regrets. Um, Raven, Spirit, and Strawberry Alarm Clock also all declined because Woodstock wasn't going to be a big deal. Just wow. I think we can all agree that that was a mistake. And there is a final category, the not finalized category. The artists that were in negotiation but just never, never quite got there. One, Billy Preston. Oh, and um, just James Taylor. I am pausing because I have thrown my notes on the ground. Can you imagine if James freaking Taylor had gotten to perform at Woodstock? James Taylor? I... We were robbed. We were robbed. Now that we have perused the almost list, let's get into the good stuff. What artists actually played at Woodstock? In general, here are the facts. 32 musical acts played Woodstock. 13 lead artists with backing bands 19 were group acts. All in all, 163 musicians in total performed at Woodstock. 
But don't worry, my friends, because I'm not going to do you guys that dirty. I do, in fact, have the set list, and I am more than happy to share with you. So, <clears throat> without further ado, here you have it. The list of artists who performed at the Woodstock Rock and Roll Festival from Friday, August 15th until Monday morning, August 18th, 1969. Day one, Friday, August 15th. Richie Havens, Sweetwater, Burt Sommer, Tim Harden, Ravi Shankar, Melanie, Arlo Guthrie, and Joan Baez. If I pronounce any of these incorrectly, keep it to yourself. I'm doing my best. Day two, Saturday, August 16th. Quill, Country Joe McDonald, Santana, John Sebastian, Keith Hartley Band, Incredible String Band, Canned Heat, Mountain, Grateful Dead, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Janis Joplin, Sly and the Family Stone, The Who, and Jefferson Airplane. Day three, Sunday, August 17th. This actually went until Monday morning, August 18th because of the weather. Joe Cocker, Country Joe and the Fish, 10 Years After, The Band, Johnny Winter, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, The Paul Butterfield Blues Band, Shanana, and last but certainly not least, Mr. Jimi Hendrix. I feel like it's pretty common knowledge, common sense, common decency even, to realize that if you're going to spend some time analyzing or gushing about the performance of one artist at Woodstock, it obviously has to be the performance of Jimi Hendrix. It's just iconic. Can we get a new word for iconic? Either I say it too much or it doesn't encompass all that I need it to. Let's continue. Jimi Hendrix was the last person to perform at Woodstock. He performed at 8.30 a.m. on Monday morning, again due to the delays that were caused by the rain. He was also the last to perform because of a special clause in his contract detailing that no other artist could perform after him. I don't know the details. I don't know the why behind that, but I love it. By the time he got to the stage, the audience had fallen to about 30,000 from the estimated peak of half a million. Many people also left during his performance because they had only waited in order to catch a glimpse of him, which is crazy town. Hendrix and his new band, Gypsy Sun and Rainbows, were introduced as The Experience. Hendrix corrected this and said, quote, you could call us a band of gypsies. Jimi Hendrix performed a two-hour set at Woodstock, including the psychedelic rendition of the National Anthem, which is now classic. This song was part of the 60s zeitgeist, as it was captured in the documentary. This song, as performed by Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock, became a huge piece of identity and culture at the time. It was such a statement for him to play the national anthem at a time when people were unhappy with the government and unhappy with the Vietnam War. And 
it was also really, really cool for him to play it in the way that he did because it's just not a way that people had heard the national anthem before. You could probably write an entire dissertation on Jimi Hendrix playing the national anthem at Woodstock, and it would be fascinating. I just, it's just amazing. I would highly recommend that you all go listen to it because it's important. So that's the end of the event. Jimi Hendrix finishes off the event with the iconic performance of the national anthem. So what does the aftermath of such an event look like? What do you think? What happens to a place after half a million people have been there for three days without adequate facilities? I'll tell you. The cold hard truth is that it was an absolute mess and there was garbage everywhere, okay? Cleanup was a huge, huge process. It actually ended up that the voters in Bethel did not reelect Supervisor Amatucci in the November 1969 election because of his role in bringing the festival to the town and the upset that was attributed to it. Now, accounts vary, but it is said that he lost by between six and 50 votes. Pretty, pretty tight margins there. It's, it was also very briefly submitted that there might be a revival of the festival the very next year. However, Max Yasker refused to run out his land again. He said, quote, as far as I know, I'm going back to running a dairy farm. And he ended up passing away in 1973. After Woodstock, New York State and the town of Bethel enacted mass gathering laws that were designed to prevent any more festivals from occurring. And 80 different lawsuits were filed against Woodstock Ventures, primarily by local farmers. The Woodstock documentary ended up financing settlements and it paid off the debts that Roberts and Rosenman had accrued from this festival, just so you know. Unlike the town of Bethel, the town of Woodstock actually made several different efforts to capitalize on their connection with the festival. Bethel's stance eventually changed and the town slowly began to embrace the festival. Now they're totally Gucci with it. Efforts were have been made to forge a kind of link between Bethel and Woodstock because they were both so influential in, in the festival. And we have talked about this a teeny bit. Woodstock actually left Roberts and Rosenman very, very close to financial ruin. Ownership of the filming and the recording rights turned their finances around completely, though because the Academy Award-winning Woodstock documentary was released in March of 1970, and my dudes, it was a very big deal. And because the documentary was such a big deal, we need to talk about it. Because if if you're like me and, and you didn't really know anything about Woodstock before now, you might not have even known that a documentary existed, which may or may not have been the case for me. I will neither confirm nor deny. However, praise the Lord, a documentary does exist. Again, this documentary was released the following year in March of 1970, and it is simply entitled Woodstock, directed by one Michael Wadley. Now listen, the story behind the documentary itself is absolutely insane. Um, 
I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you all about it. First, let me just again reiterate, it was released in March of 1970, and it was edited by a crew headed by Thelma Schoonmaker. Now listen, you guys remember Kornfeld. He's one of our, he's one of our dream team members. He goes to, you know, before the festival, he goes to Fred Weintraub, an executive at Warner Brothers, and says, hey, can I have some money to film this festival? Because he had actually been turned down everywhere else. So, yikes. Weintraub actually went against the wishes of the other executives, put his job on the line, and gave Kornfeld $100,000, which would be $800,000 today, to make this film. This movie, this documentary, it ended up saving Warner Brothers from going out of business. So I think you could say he made a good call. There is a book called Easy Riders Raging Bulls, subtitle How the Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll Generation Saved Hollywood. Um, this book is written by Peter Biskind, and it was published in 1998. This book details the making of the film. I'll link it in the show notes if you want to give it a read. So the film director, he rounded up a crew of about 100 people from the New York film scene. And there was no money to pay any of the people on the crew. So they had a double or nothing scheme, which basically meant that if the film succeeded, they would get double double pay. And if the film tanked, they would get nothing. Wadley insisted on making the movie as much about the hippies as it was about the music, which was an incredibly wonderful artistic decision. Let me just say he wanted to listen to their feelings about contemporaneous events like the like the Vietnam War. He also wanted the views of the locals in it. He wanted to capture the whole experience as much as he possibly could. And this documentary received the Academy Award for a documentary feature. Um, in 1994, Woodstock, the director's cut, was released. And it was expanded to include Janis Joplin, as well as additional performances by Jefferson Airplane, Jimi Hendrix, and Canned Heat that were not on the original version of the documentary. In 1996, it was introduced into the Library of Congress National Film Registry. In 2009, um, an expanded 40th anniversary edition was released on DVD. There were also, there's a lot of other documentaries too. There's miniseries, there's... Um, a Jimi Hendrix documentary about it. There's documentaries that have behind the scenes interviews, etc. There is a lot. You can find a lot about Woodstock in the documentary realm if you're interested, and I suggest you go look into that. There are also several albums from Woodstock, and we've got to talk about those as well. So the original was titled Woodstock, music from the original soundtrack and more. It was a three LP album containing samplings of one or two songs by most of the performing acts. Woodstock 2 was released a year later, and it was a two LP album. Both of these included recordings of stage announcements and crowd noises like the rain chant that happened between songs. Um, in 1994, Woodstock Diary was released, and this was music that was not on either of the earlier albums. And they also have a bunch of anniversary editions of the albums. In 1984, this is a fun fact. At the original site, the owners, Louis Nicky and June Gellish, put up a monument marker with plaques called 
Peace and Music. And these were created by local sculptor Wayne C. Saward. And attempts were actually made to stop people from visiting the site. Um, for example, the owner spread chicken manure around, which is an intriguing way to go about that. Also, during one anniversary, tractors and state police cars formed roadblocks to keep people away, which is wild. In 1989, 20,000 people gathered for an impromptu 20th anniversary celebration. You know, impromptu, 20,000 people. Crazy. Um, in 1997, a community group started putting up signs welcoming visitors to the area, which is very, very important to the area today. And we're actually going to get into that in a little bit. Roberts and Rosenman ended up writing a book about their experience creating Woodstock. And it was originally titled Young Men with Unlimited Capital, the inside story of the legendary Woodstock Festival told by the two people who paid for it. That, my friends, is quite a subtitle. However, this book is just about the goings-on behind the scenes during the production of the festival. It has a new name now. This book has been retitled. And because I'm a fool and there's a lot of information, um, I forgot to write it down. However, I will link it in the show notes if you are interested. So we need to talk about the legacy of Woodstock and kind of where it's at in popular culture today. So the field and the stage area remain preserved and are open to visitors as part of the Bethel Woods Center for the Arts. After being purchased in 1996 by a cable TV pioneer named Alan Jerry for the purpose of preservation. So the Bethel Woods Center for the Arts actually opened on July 1st, 2006 with a performance by the New York, New York Philharmonic, which I love for them. In June 2008, the Bethel Woods Center opened a museum dedicated to the experience and cultural significance of the Woodstock Festival, which I will be just posting links all up in here because it's an incredible website. If you don't look into anything from this episode, please look into this. Please go visit the website for the Woodstock Museum. It has a huge archive of pictures and footage and, and records of people's experiences. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. You have to go look at it. Again, I will be posting the link. Um, in August 2006, there was a performance by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. In August 2013, Richie Haven's ashes were spread there. If you don't remember, he sang the opening act at Woodstock. Um, and to this day, it's still an economic engine for the local economy. Since 2006, there have been 2.9 million visitors to the area. In 2018 alone, there were over 200,000, 200, which is so awesome. There are 172 full-time jobs in the area that are a direct result of Woodstock. Awesome, 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 my friends. And the term Woodstock generation is now par part of the common lexicon. We say Woodstock generation and we all know what we're talking about. It's true. In August 2019, the USPS released a commemorative stamp 
And you guys know how I feel about commemorative stamps, okay? There is something about a commemorative stamp that just makes me go feral. I don't know what it is. I just think it's freaking awesome. Um, moving on, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has actually collaborated with many other organizations several times to hold commemorative events for Woodstock, which is just so cool. I love that for them. Woodstock, I mean, I've talked about this so much in this episode. It is a pivotal moment in music history, as well as a defining event for a whole generation, for the counterculture generation. Its significance was only reinforced by the documentary. You know, the accompanying album, there is also a song, we talked about this, written by Joni Mitchell. It was a huge hit for Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young and Matthew Southern Comfort. There are also, I mean, there have been many, many events planned um, on the anniversaries of Woodstock. In 2004, Rolling Stone magazine listed Woodstock as number 19 of the 50 moments that changed the history of rock and roll. And just because I had to... I'm going to tell you some of the other things that were listed because, um, obviously. 1954, Elvis Presley cuts That's All Right at Sun Studio. The moment that changed the world forever, but that's a story for another time. It also included 1967 when Aretha Franklin visited Muscle Shoals, Alabama. This is where she found her sound. And yes, my friends... That did change rock and roll history. Thank you. And 1972, David Bowie launches the glam rock era. Oh, yeah, Mr. Bowie. Again, those are just a couple of other fun events on that list. But again, Woodstock is listed as number 19 in 50 moments that changed the history of rock and roll. And in 2017, the festival site was listed on the National Register of Historic Places. So here we are. We've come to the end of this very, very, very simplified version of the Woodstock Music and Arts Fair. You guys, I am wilding over here because I thought we'd be here for like three hours. This episode is not anywhere near as long as I thought it would be, which is good and also a little bit disappointing because... I mean, it's disappointing in the fact that it's like, oh, we can't spend more time together. However, it has been so much fun making this episode from the beginning of researching it to writing it to recording it today. It has been so much fun. And like I said, it has been an oddly inspiring and uplifting experience. I highly, highly recommend that all of you go look more into Woodstock. I really do. And again, I'll be posting all of the links in the world for you to follow. Please go look at the museum website if you don't look at anything else. This has just been a wild ride, but a fun ride. And I am so excited to be back for season two. This has been the greatest way to start the season off. I I love that Woodstock is is everything you've ever heard it was, and also so much more. I love it that Woodstock was this moment in history, this moment that changed music, 
but it also changed people and changed the way that we saw things and it brought attention to things in in a really different way for the millionth time i highly recommend that you continue to look into it it's wild but it's also oddly inspiring and beautiful and just really really important truly so i'm gonna leave you right there with woodstock if you want to know more check out the links that i've posted um, if you want to send me a DM, you can do so on Instagram at notstrictlyhistory underscore podcast. You can also send me a Gmail at notstrictlyhistory at gmail.com. If you'd like to request an episode, send in feedback, join the conversation, any of those things. I'm so excited to be here with you. I can't wait for this season. Thank you so much for being here today. And we will see you next time on Not Strictly History.